In the book of Revelation, Jesus sends a message to seven churches that are in a region that we call Turkey today. Today we're looking at the second of these, which is the letter to the church at Smyrna. Welcome to another podcast from Trinity Church in Palmerston North. If you've got a Bible or a phone or something, you can turn to Revelation 2. We've been going through the Bible. Started in Genesis or in Revelation. And over recent times we've been looking at the early church, the community that they built, their social ethic, the kind of message they preached. And last week we moved forwards a few years in time and we looked into the book of Revelation and the early chapters, the easiest of all of the words in Revelation to understand, we see Jesus giving feedback to some of the churches, the seven churches in the region of Turkey. And he's giving feedback on how they've been doing over recent decades, giving them a bit of a critique, and he's giving them some praise for things that they were doing well. Sometimes he gives them some challenges for some areas they need to adjust. And for each one, he gives them a promise for the future. So we're going to go through these letters, not with the idea of just having a history lesson, but the idea of being able to take out some timeless truths from all of those years ago and transport them down through the centuries and see how they can be relevant for us now. Some of this, like in our message today, I'm just going to leave you to really apply this to your own situation uh, rather than share too much about that. But that's the, that's the concept, always to take timeless truths out of the word in the context that they were written and then say, what does that mean for us in our context today all of these years later? So we are looking at the second letter which is to the church in Smyrna. I'm going to give you a little bit of background first to the, to the city. Then we're going to read the passage and have a few reflections. So this is how it goes. Smyrna was a city in Turkey, like the other churches were. It wasn't too far away from Ephesus. And it was not a, such a bad town to be living in. It was a beautiful city. It was a model of town planning. They had spacious streets. It was a free city. And it was a prosperous city. So they had a famous stadium there as well as a great library. So it was a a really lovely city to be living in in those days. There were temples everywhere to gods like Apollo and Aphrodite and Zeus. And there was a synagogue for the Jews. But there was religious freedom in that place. So you could worship in any way you wanted. If you were a Jew, you could worship as a Jew. If you wanted to go down to the temple of Apollo, you could go and do that. And if you were a Christian, then you could worship God freely. There there was was religious freedom. And you could do what you wanted. It was a great place to live. What could possibly go wrong in such a great place where there was freedom and prosperity and peace? Fantastic. But there was one issue that made it a difficult place to be a Christian in. And this was a sticking point for the church in Smyrna. Smyrna was a big center for Caesar worship. Caesar was the leader of the Roman Empire. And and the people, the inhabitants of Smyrna and other places around in the Roman Empire were very thankful for the 
for the Roman peace that they had brought because up until then things had been pretty wild. But the Romans came in and established by their, by their force, by their armies, established a peace so that cities could prosper, so they could be trade, so that people would be safe traveling from one place to another. They brought this Roman peace and Smyrna thought this was fantastic. They were living in a time of peace and prosperity. And over a period of time, the Caesars began to be seen as like a god in human form. And people started to worship the Caesars as God. At first, the Caesars were all a little bashful about this. It was like, oh, no, no, chaps, you shouldn't be worshipping us. Shouldn't really do that. They kind of probably secretly quite liked it, but kind of didn't really want to revel in worship or be seen as gods. But as time went by, the, the, the kind of worship that was voluntary that people wanted to bring to Caesar became a compulsory thing. And every year, they needed to do something. They needed to come to the altar and they needed to offer a pinch of incense and acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. That was what they needed. Once a year, this was the rule. Once a year, you go to worship the god Caesar with a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. You're acknowledging Caesar's deity, and you're acknowledging Caesar's lordship. And then after that, after you've done that, you can go and worship any god you want. You can go to the Jews, Jewish synagogue. You can go to the uh, temple of Aphrodite. You can worship in any way you want after that, as long as once a year you went to the godhead of Caesar and acknowledged that he was Lord and acknowledged his deity. And this was a compulsory kind of thing. And Christians felt, on the whole, this was something that they just couldn't do. This just doesn't seem right. This violates what we believe and our faith. We believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And and he is the one that we follow and the one that we worship. And they felt that this violated their faith and so they refused to do this duty once a year. And to refuse meant that you were branded as disloyal, you were regarded as a disaffected citizen, and basically regarded as an outlaw. And because of that, persecution could break out at any time. You could lose your job, you could lose your home, you could lose your freedom, you could use, lose your life. And they were in this situation. If only they would just go once a year and acknowledge that Caesar was Lord, then they could go back to church and they could worship in freedom. They could enjoy the peace of the city. They could trade. They could live in prosperity. All would be well. But they felt this was something that they could not do. And because of that, there were waves of persecution that raged against the church in Smyrna. And they never knew when the next one was coming. So we go to the letter now in Revelation 2, 8 to 11. Just a short note, really, from Jesus to this church. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. I know your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they're Jews, but they're not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed 
by the second death. So, we're just going to pick out a few things and chat about them this morning for a little while. Firstly, he says this. He says, I know, I know. And God always knows. He knows everything there is about us. There is nothing that is hidden. There is nothing that escapes his attention. There is nothing that he does not notice. He knows everything there is about us. For some, that, is a, <laughs> that, that is, brings a great security. And for some, they're not so sure about that, whether they'd like God to know everything. But regardless of how we feel about it, he knows. And he says to them this, I know your suffering and your poverty. I know the hard times you're going through. I understand that this is tough. And he's identifying with them and acknowledging that he sees what they're going through. And he understands what they are going through. And... Um, the, the version that I read uh, says suffering. Other versions say affliction, and some say tribulation. It literally means pressure. They were under pressure. They were under pressure from um, the society in which they lived to conform to the rules of their community, which was to go once a year and acknowledge that Caesar was Lord. They were under pressure to do that. If you do that, all will be well. Everything will be fine. Just go once a year and acknowledge that Caesar is Lord and all will be well. You can live in peace and security. But if you refuse to do that, then your homes will be ransacked. Then, then you might lose your job. You might lose your life. Times will be tough. So, he, so they were under tremendous pressure to conform to the culture of the day. They were under pressure. And the pressure was ramped up as well by some of the leading Jews of the city who would slander them. They would get alongside the, the rulers within the city and they would begin to slander the Christians. They would stir people up. They would stir up these ways of persecution. When everything was going well for the church, they'd think, oh, we're just going to get alongside some of the rulers of our city. We're going to start slandering them. We're going to start insulting them. We're going to start making up some stories about them, saying, man, these guys are rebels, they're anti-Rome, they don't like Caesar, whatever. They're going to make up some stories about them and try and stir up another wave of persecution against the church. And, and Jesus makes this comment that because their synagogue was called the synagogue of the Lord. Um, but they were so kind of stirring up problems with the Christians that Jesus says it's actually a synagogue of Satan because Satan is a slanderer and they were bringing slanderous accusations against the church. And uh, because of this pressure, they were also living in poverty. Now, the Greeks used two words for poverty. Uh, one meant you were simply poor. It meant there was nothing left over. You know, you, would live in a, you were living in a humble dwelling. You had enough food to eat, but there was nothing left over. So you were considered to be poor. You weren't living in luxury. You had no car. You had no phone. You had no Netflix. You couldn't go out for coffee. You know, there were things that you couldn't have. You couldn't buy anything extra, but you had enough just to get by. That was the normal word for poor. <clears throat> but there was another word for poor, which meant destitute, which meant you got nothing. It means that many of your basic necessities seem to be stripped away. You're left with nothing. And, and that's the word that Jesus uses here. He says, you guys are like destitute. And I understand. I know that. I know you're under pressure. And I know that you've got nothing. And I understand that situation. Now, I know some would probably give them a hard time for being destitute. 
and say, well, you need to have more faith or what have you done wrong or have you sinned? But Jesus didn't say that at all. He just said, I know. He said, I know what you're going through. He didn't have one word of criticism towards them. He didn't point a finger of accusation, tell them they should be more this or less that. He just said, look, I know and I understand. I know that you're under pressure and I know that you are destitute and I know that life simply does not seem fair. But in the midst of this, what he said to encourage them, he said, I know about your sufferings and your poverty, but he said, actually, you're rich. Actually, you're rich. If you measure yourself against the luxury that others in the city are living in, they've got everything. Then he said, you might consider yourself poor in material things, but actually, he said, you're actually rich. You're actually rich. Because of your relationship with Christ, because of your new life that you've found in God, because of the community that you're now part of, you've actually got a richness that goes beyond anything that this world can offer you and anything that this world can take away from you. You've got something of far higher value. So he didn't say, cheer up, I'm about to open up the windows of heaven and money's going to pour down on you. He said he was pointing them to another kind of rich of riches, another kind of riches that the world can't give and the world can't take away. If Paul, this is in the church uh, at Ephesus, he said, I want you to realize what a rich and glorious inheritance he's given to his people. And I pray that you'll begin to understand the incredible greatness of his power for us who believe him. So Jesus and Paul are saying to the church, you guys, no matter what your circumstance in life is, no matter what sort of car you drive, no matter what sort of house you live in, no matter what sort of food is in your table, no matter how much excess money you have or whether you are destitute and poor and broke, regardless of your situation, you are the ones who have a richness of which other people scarcely can understand or know anything about. And so he wants them to focus in on their richness in Christ. Now, I think guys like Paul and Silas understood this. You remember the story, one of my favorite stories in, in the book of Acts, in Acts 16, when they're getting around and, and sharing good news, and they end up getting thrown in prison. They get thrown down into the inner dungeon. They've already been, they've been, their clothes stripped off. They've been beaten. They've been thrown down into the inner dungeon. Their feet are in stocks, and it's the middle of the night. And it's like, it's like, it started off such a good day. They were out there sharing their faith and praying for people. It was a great day. They end the day and it's midnight and it's like they're stuck in prison. They've been beaten. Their clothes have been ripped off. And it's just like everything has gone horrendously wrong. And the Bible tells us that there they are singing hymns, praising God and offering up prayers. And the other prisoners are kind of listening to them. I think they understood something, that the richness that they had was not dependent on their circumstance. It was dependent on something else that was eternal. And they understood that. And because of that, despite the fact that their circumstance had gone so badly wrong inside of a day, they were still able to thank God. They were still able to give praise to God. They were still able to, they still had something. They had a spark of joy and a spark of life and a spark of gratitude that was inside of them. I think that's, that's, that's a good thing for us to remember because I don't know about you. Sometimes we can just get grumpy about things if they're going wrong. 
you know, if someone's indicating wrong at the roundabout, since I learned how to indicate at a roundabout, my awareness has been heightened at how badly people indicate. This is an issue to me. Cyclists who ride four abreast and you can't get past them. These things are my major trials in life. You know, but really, sometimes we need to stop and get things into perspective. Sometimes when things go wrong, we think it is no big deal. Circumstances come and go. Money, it comes and goes. Circumstances comes and goes. Good times and bad times. It's all part of life. These things come and go. But some things are eternal. And God can be trusted. And we have a richness in Christ that no one can ever take away from us. And that was something that Jesus was wanting to encourage them with that they had something that their circumstances couldn't take away. And if that wasn't bad enough, in terms of their suffering, he goes on to say, the devil will throw some of you into prison to test you, and you'll suffer for 10 days. He's right. You'd think, wouldn't Jesus say, I know, I know that you're going through a hard time. I know you're under pressure. I know you're poor. So I am going to turn up. I am going to kill all of those people who are persecuting you. Their bodies will lie rotting in the streets. And I am going to pour truckloads of money. And, and, and all will be well. And sometimes we think that's how a prayer should be answered. And sometimes, not quite like that, but sometimes that is what happens. We're in a tough time. And then answers just come. Answers appear. Money arrives. Prayers are answered. It seems like there is miraculous intervention, and we are always deeply grateful for that when that happens. But this was not going to be the situation for them anytime soon. And actually, in fact, he says, you're going to get, some of you are going to be thrown into prison, and some of them, some of you might likely die. He's telling them another wave of persecution is on the way, and some of them may not survive it. It's like, well, that's not a letter you'd necessarily feel great about getting. But Jesus introduces himself to them at the beginning of this letter. He says, I am the first and the last who died and came back to life again. I was the first and the last. I was there in the beginning and I'll be there in the end. I'm the alpha and the mega, the beginning and the end. I'm there all through, through every age. I am there through every age. I am supreme. Through every age, you can trust in me. I'm the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And what's more, I died. I died myself. I'm telling you guys, some of you guys are going to die. Actually, I can tell you probably we're probably all going to die sooner or later. So um, the fact is everyone just dies. And he said some of you are going to die sooner instead of later. It's just the way it is. You know, you've you got a choice. You die sooner or you die later. You die young or you die old. Sooner or later we die. And he's saying... But there is nothing to fear inside of death because I died myself and now I am alive again. That's how he introduces himself to them. He's trying to take the fear of death out of their hearts and out of their lives. He's kind of saying, it seems like this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. You're under pressure. You're destitute. Now, some of you are going to be thrown into prison and you're going to die. But he says, it's not all bad. <laughs> it's not all bad news because death isn't the end. Because I died and I've come back to life again. And he's encouraging them, saying that it's not so bad because we're all going to die sooner or later anyway. And if you've got faith in Christ, then you know that it's not really the end. It's simply a new beginning. So he's saying, cheer up. Some of you might die, but it ain't so bad. And so he tells them, he said, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the first and the last. 
I'm the one who died and came back to life again. And he says to them, don't be afraid. His words, don't be afraid. And he gave them a promise. Here's the promise. But if you, re- but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. He's encouraging them now with something that goes beyond the grave. He's always pointing them in this letter to things that are eternal, to things that are fixed, to things that can't be taken away, to things that can't be shaken. And he's saying, be faithful, even if you're facing death, and I'm going to give you a crown of life. Don't give up. Don't compromise. Don't give in to the pressure. Don't do what's convenient. Do what is right, and you will receive the crown of life. And, and they knew the crown he was talking about. It was the Stephanos. It was a, it was a crown that was used in different situations. If you, if you won a race, if you were in the athletic games in their magnificent stadium and you came first place and you're standing on the podium, you would be given this crown, this wreath. And it's, it was a kind of like, well done. You know, you've, you, you've completed the race and you've, and, you, and you've done well. Or in Smyrna in particular, they used it in a very particular kind of way as well. And perhaps this is what Jesus was referring to, that if you were a good citizen of Smyrna and you were faithful to kind of do good to the city, then you also received this kind of crown, this wreath. The Stephanos, as a mark of respect, they would gather together and they would give you this crown and say, this is to thank you for your service to the city. And it's kind of like, you know, the, the, the Queen's birthday honours and all that kind of stuff. You know, people who've given service to their country are given an honour within our society. And this is what they had in Smyrna. They were honoured if they gave service to their city. And I wonder if this is what Jesus was really referring to. If you remain faithful to me, then I'm going to give you the crown of life in gratitude to you. So stay true. Even if it costs you everything, there's a reward waiting you, and it'll be worth it in the end. As a guy, the guy who writes Revelation is John, and apparently he had a disciple called Polycarp, and Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, this place that we are reading about here. And when he got old, he was still going through hard times. And he was threatened with death. And these are his words. He was 86. Eighty and six years have I served Christ, and he's never done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So even when this elderly gentleman was being threatened with death. He said, I can't turn against Christ just to try to save my life because he's been good to me all the days of my life and I am going to be faithful to him until the end. Sure, there were people who could have taken his life, but he was putting his trust in something that was eternal. He was putting his trust in something that would not give way that wasn't subject to the fluctuations and the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of life. Okay, summing up. Four things that we can pull out of the letter. Whether you've got plenty or whether you've got nothing, you know, regardless of the circumstance of your life right now, some of you might think, man, we've never... 
We've never had it so good. We've never had so much. Everything is just awesome. And some of you might be sitting there thinking like, man, we've never been through such a difficult time. We've never had so little. We've never faced such big challenges. And all of us are probably in different situations in life. But what he's saying is, whether you've got plenty or whether you've got nothing, remember that in Christ you're rich. Right here, right now, whatever your circumstance You have a richness in Christ. He will never, ever let you down. Secondly, when you're under pressure to conform, remember that Jesus values your faithfulness and one day that will be rewarded. Thirdly, when you're facing death, sooner or later we all do, remember that there's nothing to fear inside of death. Jesus says, don't be afraid people of Smyrna and people of Palmerston North, don't be afraid when you're facing death because death is not the end. It's simply a new beginning. And fourth, when times are tough, remember that nothing, but nothing can ever separate you from the love of God. I'm going to finish on this scripture, New Living Translation, Romans 8. This is what Paul said. And Paul If you've read through the book of Acts and through his letters, you'll know that Paul went through some really difficult times. And In fact, he said, I've learned the secret of being content, whether everything is just fantastic or whether everything is really terrible. That's a kind of a rough paraphrase. But he found the secret of being content, whether he had heaps or whether he had nothing. He found that there was a secret to that. He found a contentment that didn't depend upon his circumstance. And he had some hard times and he had some great times. He had all sorts of different times. And some of us don't have the same extremes that Paul had. But we all have our ups and downs. We all have our challenges and we all have our privileges and we all have good times, bad times, and a few in-between times as well. But this is what he said through everything that he had been through. I am convinced. I'm convinced. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't and life can't. The angels can't and the demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, and even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we're high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray.